from the team at CTS, this is the Train Ride Podcast, our show for endurance athletes who want to learn how to train more effectively and improve their performance. I'm Coach Adam Pulford, your host for the cycling edition of the show, where it's my job to interview top coaches, scientists, experts, and athletes in the world of cycling to bring you actionable training tips that you can apply to your own training. Now, let's dive into the show and learn how you can train right. In the past two episodes, we've covered how having a detraining period planned out and deployed into your training program can help your body recover from months and months of built up stress and strain from your primary sport. We then discussed how and when to implement strength training into your off season, along with keeping it into your habits year round for the most effective way to have strength training in. In part three of the off the bike training series, I want to go a bit deeper into the muscle physiology, some of the neurophysiology and explore why all of this training that we do off the bike is good. What the actual benefits are to you as an athlete and also touch on some different techniques that we have not yet discussed on this podcast. To do that, I bring in one of my favorite all-time guests. Uh, she's been on the podcast before and she has just, you know, different angles on training athletes. So, uh, we had a great conversation. We went a little long, so you might have to break it up into a couple different listenings, but trust me, it's super worth it. So, uh, strap in, clip in, buckle in, whatever you're doing to listen and, uh, enjoy the show. This episode of the Train Right Podcast is brought to you by The Feed. The Feed is giving you a $20 credit to use on your first order of $35 or more. Head on over to trainright.com backslash podcast and claim your 20 bucks today. So what is The Feed? Well, it's the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition products, offering you brands that you know and love from ProBar to Fluid Hydration to Momentus and, and many, many more. The right nutrition at the right time can help level up your performance, can help you punch through that next workout, or just increase the fun factor of training and riding your bike. You can order in a few ways from the feed. If you're like me and you love to stock up the pantry, you can make one big time purchase with all the boxes and tubs of product that you know works for you. If you want to make sure that you have the freshest stuff and mix up flavors and products, then you can choose a subscription-based model and get the freshest products delivered to you every four weeks or on a time frame that works for you. Finally, if you're new to the nutrition game and you just want to try a couple different products or flavors, you can do that too. Order a few of this, a few of that, dial in your preferences first, and then order as much as you need. Either way, the feed is your spot for endurance nutrition needs. Head on over to trainright.com backslash podcast and get your $20 credit to the feed. Welcome back or welcome to the Train Right Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Adam Pulford. If you've been around the sports of triathlon or cycling, or you tune into this podcast, you've heard the name Erin Carson. She's a former guest on the Train Right Podcast and owner of EC Fit in Boulder, Colorado. Erin, welcome back to the show. Adam, it's great to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you. So since we last spoke, which was, I think at the, like the height of the pandemic, <laughs> what's, which is, feels like forever ago, but, uh, what's been going on? 
You know, the the pandemic changed so many things, um, sometimes created challenges to overcome and sometimes just brought a ton of focus into the time. Um, somehow coming down to this anchor that it, that that time was a gift uh, to all of us to be able to go deeper without so many um, com- competitions, uh, p- perhaps getting in the way. Um, because training and racing is, is that constant cycle. And even in, with a young athlete, you know, we always have to have our athletes prepared for competition, but when there wasn't any competition, it really allowed the work that, that I do as a, uh, as a strength coach and as a performance, um, enhancement specialist to really be able to go deeper without that constant, um, distraction of racing. And now that racing is coming back, it's pretty exciting to see people in all different, um, all different conditions, whether it be good because they were ready for the competitions, or perhaps it was even bad for some because they were not ready for competition. So we see a lot of pros um, with injuries or overuse things, and they just got so excited and perhaps a little bit afraid that um, the racing would go away again. So uh, I think we've seen all kinds of different adjustments being made, but for the most part, um, the athletes that I have the opportunity to work with, and and I've gotten a lot of new athletes um as well through the through the process so i'm just glad that i don't think we're fully through the pandemic but i think um i'm very cautiously optimistic that people are learning how to function within a new realm of reality around racing and training and wellness and health and uh, maybe placing a little bit more importance on health which is probably pretty good yeah that's a that's a very um, valid point to make there, um, with the focus on health. And yeah, I don't, I don't think we're on the backside of this thing yet. Um, it's certainly through in a ripple effect into, uh, our little sport of endurance our little community of endurance. And, um, yeah, I remember talking to you about a, a little bit of a blank slate of what we're doing with our athletes to go deeper into those things. So, um, well, for our listeners who may have not have listened to the first episode, could you just give us the 30 second pitch of what EC fit is and what you specialize in? Well, being in Boulder, I'm kind of in the Mecca of, of endurance sports. So it's a blessing for me to have been, um, I own a gym here in Boulder, a 40,000 square foot training facility called Rally Sport. Um, I'm one of a few owners. It's a big club, uh, but I'm also a strength and conditioning specialist. And watching how some of the best athletes in the world have gone about their gym work has been both um, – uh, exciting and it made me question things, made me question athletes and, and perhaps um, by the work that I've done with a lot of really great mentors and experts in performance, uh, been able to bring that level of expertise and perhaps pairing back some of the traditional strength and conditioning concepts to meet endurance athletes kind of where they are, which is they carry a high level of fatigue. So you can't just throw uh, the kitchen sink of strength work at an endurance athlete because it won't usually be successful because of the the amount of training that, that we do. And I'll say we because I'm a triathlete myself. I enjoy uh, cycling and, and I hope to enjoy it for a long time. So I think um, understanding what, what each athlete needs has been uh, a really fun process, uh, figuring out 
how to individualize the process, but also to recognize that um, we all should kind of meet in that in that anchor of wellness and health and movement as probably the first layer uh, towards strength and conditioning um, that an athlete does in fact move really well uh, before we start adding a bunch of load. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And for endurance athletes, I mean, a, a little dose goes a long way and, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more because um, it's, it's important to keep, I've spoke on this on other episodes too, but to keep that at the helm, I, I do think for a lot of endurance athletes, because we want to just punch through hard training and think it, hard training is always going to happen, but it's, it's not. And I think that too helps frame up this episode, which you're, you're part three in a series of what we're talking about is training off, off the bike or off the primary sport. And really it started with, um, getting the athlete to detrain or hit the reset button to get good rest from a long season of training before they ramp back up. And then from there, start adding in these, these other elements to get them stronger and healthier for 2023 or whatever the next, you know, phase is in your training. So, you know, I, and then, you know, go back to our, uh, our first episode together that we did the, the, the original interview, um, we'll pull on some pieces that we talked about there too. So it's not going to be <laughs> far away from uh, what we said before, but it's a good reminder. And we're going to add in some, some new elements here. So to get things properly framed up. I, I do find some athletes getting confused on how much the brain and the body are involved in the process of training. In other words, they think that it's more about the muscles in the body than the brain giving the benefit. It, it, do you see that as well, Aaron, in what you do? Yes. Um, muscles. Mm -hmm. We, I, I stopped training muscles a long time ago. Um, <laughs> we train, That's an we awesome train movement. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We train movement and we train performance and, and f through high performance athletes and really talented people, um, the rest of us can learn because the little bit of tweaking that a high performance athlete needs and wants to get to that next level is very, very minute then you start working your way down from high performance world-class athletes and you start finding that I can make a few errors with someone like myself. You know, I'm an, I'm a eight competitive age grouper. I say competitive because I, I'm, I have not been ever in my mind a participant. I'm a competitor and I'm, I've got enough physical gifts that I'm going to probably get on a podium or two at each year. Um, so for me, I can make less errors for someone who's just getting into the sport. We can, we can throw a little bit more of the kitchen sink at them and they're going to, they're going to get better, but uh, always constantly learning from the pros, from the world-class athletes. Um, that is probably the most exciting thing for all of us because we, we won't screw it up um, too much for a recreational participant. Um, someone who just loves sport and wants mm. to do it for a long time. Um, we had, there's some room for error there and it's not bad error. It's not like we're going to hurt people, but we're, we're able to not be as specific per se, and they're still going to feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and you know, when I'm on the topic of strength training or off the 
bike off the run off the swim training type stuff. I, I get a lot of, Hey, that's, that's a great coach, but I don't like lifting weights. I don't like being in a gym. So what else can I do for that? What would be, do you find that as well? And what's your response to that? There's a reason athletes don't like the gym. And it's funny because I, I, we're, we're going to name drop in this podcast because it's okay. It's okay. And, um, Morgan, Morgan Pearson is a, is one of the top, uh, triathletes, short Mm -hmm. course triathletes. Um, and I'll, I'll say pretty confidently in the world, he won a silver Mm -hmm. medal in Tokyo in the, um, in the team relay in triathlon. And, uh, he's just coming back from an injury. But when he came to me, he had an injury and he said, just so you know, I hate going to the gym. And I was like, I'll take that as a challenge. Let's go Kokomo, you know? And it was kind of like, um, after the first two weeks and Morgan's kind of uh, a quiet, uh, introspective young man. And I, I kind of went out on a limb after two weeks and I was like, uh, do you still hate the gym? And he didn't even answer me at first. I don't know if he remembers this, but I do. And I asked him again in two more weeks. And he then had started reaching out to me and saying, are we doing gym on Tuesday? Are we doing gym? And then I knew we had, we had achieved that he was starting to not only enjoy it, but he was also primarily probably motivated by the results he was both seeing in his wattage and his feeling when he was training um, and also that he was enjoying the process. He understood that we were in a process. And uh, so I think from a, from a coaching standpoint, from my perspective, it is always, always important to earn the trust of the athletes super early in the process. Yep. There's a lot of strength coaches out there doing what I do, working with, with high-performance athletes, and I would hope that they're doing the same thing. First and foremost is earn the trust and, um, and intrigue of, from their athletes. So they want to come back. So I always notice when an athlete reaches out to me first and says, are, are we doing gym on Tuesday? Are we, you know, can we do some more of that? They're starting to really feel it in their performance. So it always has to serve the outcome. The outcome is to make the track session a little bit easier. The outcome is to make the bike feel a little bit better. Um, they start recognizing that they're they're performing better. They're going to keep coming back. So yeah. I think some of the processes that um, I've been able to put together with myself and, and my coaches has been a really, really good process with, with athletes. They feel it quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like if you, if you achieve better movement and better performance, whatever biasy that athlete is bringing in is going to be gone with yeah. whatever the movement yeah, because training pattern that you're traditional, doing. traditional strength training and weight training, mm-hmm. um, with, with a strength coach that isn't, that doesn't ride a bike or run in the mountains or swim in a pool. Mm-hmm. Not to say that that strength coach can't be really, really successful. But being able to feel it and feel that snap and that quickness and that fire um, is an advantage as from a strength coaching perspective, if you ask me. I know what it feels like to run off of a TT bike, mm-hmm. you know, and I know what it feels like to feel good running off of a TT bike. Yeah. So, yeah, that's there's a difference that's there, that's important. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, in in framing or in, in thinking of this podcast, too, there there was like a third element of, you know, if we th- think about like the body and then we think of the brain, this third element that is very common in sport, in our primary sport, but as well as in strength and yoga and in some of these other aspects is, is breath. And we haven't 
re- we'll see where this goes because we haven't really talked about this. I think we're probably aligned, but am I right to think that breath is kind of the a common thread that is woven throughout all of the training modalities that we're talking about and into the sport? Yes, Um, I think that at the beginning of the pandemic and even pre-pandemic, because I was introduced to breath work from Dr. Eric Goodman from Foundation Training. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Eric looks at breath work as the expansion of the rib cage um, to enhance mobility of the body Mm -hmm. uh, and decompress the spine and increase anchoring within the body. Um, all of those three things we can kind of get into a little bit as we go. When the pandemic came and people's anxiety, a lot of my athletes really experienced a lot of stress, high, high stress, as did most of us. And we started looking at the autonomic nervous system. I was an aura ring user or I'm not a whoop person, but we're, yeah, (laughs) we're all, we're all thinking, how can I be better? And how can I go through this incredibly challenging time? Um, When you start watching heart rate variability and you start to realize your stress load, even though you're a generally optimistic, happy person, it's okay to say things aren't okay. And now we have some data to kind of back that up. And we can also see that some of the things that we're choosing, some of the activities to be proactive in our own physical recovery and well-being um, can be measured in a really easy, accessible way. Is it exact? I don't know. You know, everybody likes to argue, is one more accurate than the other? Really what we're looking at is trends. And so with the aura ring and heart rate variability and understanding the autonomic nervous system, we started incorporating some breath work to start to stimulate a parasympathetic nervous system, to start to decrease anxiety so that we could actually get some performance gains through a very challenging intellectual and emotional time. So uh, breath work became a really, really important component. We were being proactive. We could, we could take control of our, our own destiny of recovery and, and wellness. Well, yeah, that's huge. And I'd say I'm kind of aligned right there with you in terms like the terms that you're using and also just like uh, the pandemic creating a new stimulus for it with the tools and the time to go deeper into it. So this is going to be a cool conversation. So we, we got the body, we got the brain, we got breath. Let's, yeah. let's go deeper into th- those three. Okay. We'll circle, yeah. we'll, we'll circle back to the body. Um, everybody loves muscles. So let's start there. Let's start with muscle physiology. When, when we're training, let's just say traditional strength training. If you, if you want to start there, or you can go with like what you do, but I'm curious how you would describe what is happening, what are the changes occurring in the muscle physiology when you're working with an athlete via strength training? Without going too deep in the exercise phys, you know, uh, the University of Colorado kinesiology degree that I got however many thousands of years ago, I think the most important (laughs) way that I'm looking at it now is to build the most resilient athlete we can build. I think in our last conversation, we both agreed that the person who deadlifts the most isn't usually the best athlete in any sport. Most strength coaches, whether it's soccer, uh, football, or anything, they are going to have these guys and, and females who perform extremely well in the weight room, who that does not necessarily translate to um, overall success 
in in sport. And I've always taken that. I, I, I don't care what they do in the gym. I don't care how much weight they lift. Um, the most important thing to me and coaches love me for this is that how is your speed feeling when you're running? How is your speed and strength feeling when you're cycling? And, and do you feel confident um, to either make a hit or take a hit in the water going around a buoy? You know, so I'm more training the resiliency of the athlete, mostly the connective tissue. We're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, apply load into a system within the body so that that tissue, that connective tissue specifically becomes very matrixed and very strong and very resilient and can take on a ton of training load. And I think that that is more important than the absolute amount of weight that an athlete is lifting. So we want to come at it from 360 degrees of force. Um, I love deadlifting. I love squatting patterns. I, I, I am not a back squatter. Um, I just took on a brand new athlete um, from Europe who actually w- had a tremendous amount of weight on the back of her shoulders and tore a labrum in her hip, just totally heard it pop. Um, And that would make sense to me, unfortunately, because we are able to put a tremendous amount of load on our back um, that we wouldn't necessarily be able to load in the front. Um, Head position is also really important to me. uh, And back squatting is not conducive to a great head position. Does it build lower body strength? Yes. Um, Does it do a lot of other things? Yes. but I'm, I'm much more of a front squatter. I'm not a big absolute load person. I'm looking for resiliency and to apply force from 360 degrees in different different ways. So that's probably more important to me. And ranges of motion, you know, the old weight room ass to the grass mentality of your butt needs to be below your knees. That has never been part of my story at all. A quarter squat is just fine with me um, yep. for most people. Agreed. So. Agreed. Pistol squats, absolutely not my favorite either. Yeah, a lot of people get hurt so. doing those. <laughs> so then. I'm very risk averse. <laughs> I yeah. love it. To um, a fault, perhaps. Yeah. Which, well, it's working for you. So uh, keep on with it. Very much. Yeah. yeah. So I, I got to ask the question then. So if we're not, mm-hmm. if we're not as interested in the muscle physiology with what you're doing, and you said, ah, the total load and all this kind of stuff. How, how do you maybe quantify training stress in the gym or with what you do? Is it, is it total load or weight moved? Is it time under tension, like counting out all the things? Is it a TSS score? Like, how do you quantify that with what you do? I don't. I, it's really just about consistency. It's about consistently being in the gym. You know, we're going into the off season. And I'm definitely going to be keeping close track of everything that the athletes do when they come into the gym in the off season, um, in the, in the racing and, and active training season, I don't keep track because I think I'll just get my feelings hurt. (laughs) You know, it's just like, because coaches take the lead at that time of the year and those athletes come in and I might have a full plan Uh, ready to go. And that athlete comes in and they feel a little niggle coming on. Um, I think understanding and learning your body is really an important part of the process. And if if something hurts, we don't want to poke the bear. We want to try and unload 
the 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 niggle. We want to go to plan B very very quickly and don't force that. My philosophy as a strength coach, I very rarely get to impose uh, um, a systematic overload of the body when when the sport is what's most important. Um, then the strength coach shouldn't be uh, applying progressive overload. The sport coach should. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to pay attention in the off season for sure. There's some athletes that are performing at the top of their sport. Uh, those athletes need to maintain where they are. Their coach will get them better and faster. I, I will keep them consistent in the gym. I will not trash them um, physically in the gym. Mm-hmm. But there are some athletes that show a lot of promise and a lot of uh, they need to continue to develop. Those athletes, their numbers perhaps uh, matter just a little bit more. But I use a lot of modalities that don't you can't really quantify either. So if you look at a Mm -hmm. K box and eccentric trainer, Mm -hmm. um, we really have no idea what's happening in a, in a eccentric loading in a K box. And you'd have to Google that to, to really see what that is. Um, but it basically is a machine that the more force you put into it, the more it gives back to you in the eccentric load. And, And it's one of my favorite tools. Um, same thing with vipers, another modality that I like to use, um, that isn't traditional uh, in that it's not a kettlebell. It's not a dumbbell and speed of movement uh, is something that we use a lot. Um, So throwing things is hard to measure. So a lot of it is, is very, um, how does that make you feel? And if an athlete enjoys training with a Viper or they enjoy training with a med ball or they enjoy the K box and they start to feel good in a training session following that, that section of, uh, gym that we're doing, um, we're just going to keep doing it. So a lot of it comes from the athlete. So, you know, we're, we're talking about endurance athletes where the, I'd say the habit right now, the trend is to quantify everything, grab all the data you can and, and probably stress out about it. So how do you teach these endurance athletes, these, these, alpha nerds, if you will, coming to you and they, they want to see progress. They want to see progress in the numbers. They want to quantify the, the stress in the gym and tell their coach about it. Like, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think we always have to keep coming back to what is the goal. And you see me, if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm looking down and I'm looking away and I'm, I might even be looking a little sad because I actually lost an athlete um, in the last couple months because I wouldn't do that. Um, he's, he's an up and coming young pro. Um, I've worked with him for a long time and he started thinking that he needed to lift heavier and heavier weights. He needed more volume and more intensity. And philosophically, I just didn't feel that health wise, that was what he needed. And he pushed me a little bit harder. And I said, I, okay, so if we're going to go deeper on this, then let's include your coach and let's look at the volume and intensity that you're doing in your sport as well because if if she's willing to bring the volume and intensity of the training back then then i think we could probably have that conversation about increasing things in the gym and he wasn't willing to do that and so we actually parted ways and that has been really really hard for me but it also um reinforced that i i feel very very deeply about uh their health uh, they being the people yeah. that I have the chance to work with. And I'm not going to apply more volume and more intensity 
because there might be more patience needed in the process of training. You know, you're one of the best coaches in the world, Adam, when it comes to high performance athletes. And some athletes are going to take two or three years to find their very, very best. Mm -hmm. And when we become impatient in the process or we stop trusting the process of training in, in all different realms, I think that's when we start to get in trouble. And I might be wrong, but I probably like i said i'm risk averse and i'm and i'm just so believe in a process that if we're in one and it's working and i mean this athlete was yeah. achieving podiums like mm -hmm. and just wasn't happening i guess fast enough so yeah i mean you well if you're wrong i'm wrong and a bunch of other people are wrong too successful people are wrong um because it, yeah, I, I think that your your process again, it, you know, it works, and, and I think that the strongest message I can kind of reinforce here is this: away from primary sport training is almost the opposite, right, of that primary sport in, in the way of how to think about the stress and strain and quant quantify everything, and I think. <clears throat> When you, when you get a good strength coach or a kind of a body coach like this, um, it, it is very individualized. It's very kind of aware centric and we'll get into a little bit more of that here soon, but I encourage all the listeners to maybe even like move away from the data from this stuff. Sure. Throw in a TSS. So that kind of maybe counts for something that that makes you feel good, but like it, it's a lot of the quality of movement and a feeling sort of thing in order to, to get there. So we'll put a pin in that for us. Well, unless you got a, a further comment on that, Aaron. <laughs> but, no, yeah. I agree. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause we'll, we'll pin it. We'll come back to it because it's, it's so, it's so important, but you, you mentioned tendons, bones, ligaments. What is going on? Like in that structure with what you do in strength work or, um, or body work here, what's going on at the athlete level? What's going on inside the athlete's body? And how does that benefit them in the long run? It's a, it's basically a fascial matrix that begins to form. It's, it's, it's said in short, it's uh, scar tissue, but it's healthy because it moves. Yeah. And because when you look at the brain, you have, you cannot talk about the brain without talking about the nervous system and the way that a body moves. Um, so when the body feels safe, it opens up and this freedom comes when the body, uh, I think in the work of, of Tim Noakes, and he talks a lot about the central governor mm -hmm. and, you know, I just believe in that so much that your brain will not let your body override the safety of the system. And so I talk a lot about the movement bubble uh, and we want this movement bubble to be huge um, for any athlete. You know, you look at a lot of, uh, linear athletes and they move very linear. And one of my favorite things to do in the first couple sessions with a, a linear athlete is to bring them back to some of their childhood roots. We use a lot of play. We play catch. We do side shuffling. We throw things around. Um, I just started with a, a kid that I've worked with and known for quite a while, but I haven't really dug in with him because uh, he moves around a lot. But we're working together right now, uh, and he was a hockey goalie when he was a kid. So I set up a goal, 
and I just started throwing things at him as hard as I could. And I have to stay really fit because I have to do this kind of stuff. <laughs> but it was, sure. he was laughing, he was smiling and he was like, you can't get it by me. You can't get yeah. it by me. And he lost all focus of being a triathlete. And in that moment he was 10 and he was a goalie. And all of a sudden where we're trying to get more thoracic spine mobility, where we're trying to get more separation of the, uh, of the rib cage and the pelvis, and we're trying to get the pelvis to get a little bit more into neutral from this stuck position of an anterior tilt and the ankles started moving. Um, he wasn't thinking about it. And, um, the, you know, again, I've mentioned so much the people that have taught me these things. Uh, Ian O'Dwyer is a, a wonderful coach. Uh, he lives in New Zealand now. He's an Aussie. And uh, he just, the power of play is so powerful. Running backwards, running sideways, pretending you're a goalie and, and remembering when you were 10. It's all in us, you know. And then does he love swim, biking and running? Without question. That is his passion. He doesn't want to be a goalie. Mm -hmm. but it's in us when we were kids, it's developed and it's fun and that's okay. And uh, so we're having a good time and he's starting to free up in his running is becoming, he'll get faster because he has a very good coach. Um, but now the freedom to run fast without restriction, without distraction of pain or, or tightness is what we're really, really after. So will we lift weights to enhance that whole process? You bet. But um, it'll be a fun process. Yeah. So really what you're talking about is like this, this development of kind of like more rigidity in the right way with mobility is going to allow endurance athletes more training availability or more training days to essentially do more at a higher quality movement. And know how to undo it. Yeah. You know, you get back from yeah. a six hour bike ride up in the mountains um, there's going to be a physical response and a physical tightness that comes with that kind of training. Mm -hmm. But the ability to undo it quicker is, is awesome. Playing Frisbee is one of the best things ever. For sure. Um, I had, I had like a, an example of that, but I'm going to ask a few more questions and then I'll circle back to the example. Cause it's actually, I, I think it's like super applicable to that, like six hour ride in the mountains sort of situation. Um, the, where the brain and the body get a little hung up. However, the first question I have for you before we get into that is, is, is say if an athlete is, is listening to this and that like Aaron Carson, she sounds rad. She sounds like she can solve my problems. If they started working with you, like how, how soon would they start to feel some of these benefits or how, how quickly does this like structural connective tissue, uh, matrix start occurring quickly it's yeah. it's pretty amazing so the the use of the foundation training that doc goodman has kind of put together is usually my first step because there's such a process an early process to doing a founder doing a woodpecker um there's also a lot of half kneeling uh rib cage expansion hip flexor opening that that a lot of traditional strength coaches do, but I might put it together in a package that's a little bit easier to and accessible to do. Um, uh, I, the athlete, the European female that I started with last week, uh, who had uh, lab hip hip labrum uh, repair less than a year ago, uh, about eleven months. So she's been racing all summer. Um, had had pain in the World Championships in St. George. 
didn't have the best finish. We did one session together. She ran a 10K the next day. So she's healthy. She just hadn't felt great. Um, she did a 10K the next day and felt really good. Yeah. And she came back the next day and she goes, that's it. I want to work with you. This, I, you know, and, and had, yeah. the work is just beginning. It's not going to hold. Right. You know, we're just starting to open her up, but give her more of that. And I think you used the word stiffness. Yeah. Uh, I like I like that word, Be, uh, stiffness, um, rigidity, healthy, mm-hmm. healthy stiffness, not tightness. Yeah, because listeners have to remember that a high-performing muscle is not a loose muscle. It, it's not so rigid that there's injury. It's somewhere in the middle, usually a little bit more rigid, but mobile. And, or tension. Yeah, you know, that's tension. the way yeah. I... The way, the way I might describe the difference between foundation training and yoga, I needed something. I'm a pretty intense person, um, as, and as a coach, I'm pretty intense. I needed something that was going to serve me um, from a leadership standpoint that was not on the, the coaching uh, spectrum. And so I, I was like, am I a yoga person? And I'm like, I don't think, I, I don't think I'm a yoga person. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing against yoga. There's some people who do it really well. But the difference between foundation training and I think the reason it really worked for me was uh, from a leadership and wanting to learn more about it uh, is because it, it enhances performance. It brings tension into the system in a really healthy way versus yoga, which might try and take the tension away. And we don't want no tension in performance. Um, there's a lot of principles from foundation training that my athletes will use while they're racing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's usable while racing to try and create balance in, in the body and increase performance. And you can also use that same technique after you train to help restore and rebalance the body. So you mentioned yoga. If some of our listeners are doing or have a yoga practice or Pilates, would you say that that is mm-hmm. beneficial to their endurance training or is it working against them? Well, that's not really my place to say one way or the other because I don't see their data. Sure. Um, so if they if they see their data and they did a yoga class on a Friday night and then went out for a group ride on a Saturday and felt amazing, I'm good. Like that's amazing. If they didn't have that connection or that quickness to keep up with the group, or they felt off, or they felt mm-hmm. sluggish. Um, then I'd say maybe there's a better way to do it. But if there's no deficit and there is actually lack of deficit, like they feel good, then then by all means, that's let's go. That's that's good stuff. And I I love the way um, you know Pilates people are very very passionate about Pilates. I haven't seen too many people. There's not not too much downside. Um, I think when you start talking and bringing in all these different options. Um, the, the time and energy uh, conversation needs to start being had because you could do yoga and then have to go to Pilates and then do a foundation class. <laughs> and before you know it, you're, you're compromising on some of your social responsibilities with your family or with yeah. your, you know, or you're just living this isolated life around performance that, that in my opinion might not be the, the fullest way to live your life either. So um, I think finding what works best for you is probably a really, really good journey to be on. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it does come down to feeling and awareness as, as much as it's abstract and people are like, oh, I want an answer. It's like, well, you know, that say it's yoga, for example, 
if your training volume is super high and you go into like a hot yoga class and you do that three times a week, you'll probably feel that in your training and it's going to start to take away from it. But if you hit some, let's just say this is the same hot yoga classes, let's just three days a week in December in Colorado with training volume lower. And so it's probably going to like feel good and it's going to, so all this will shift. And I think that I'll speak with myself. I, I do some yoga. I would say more of like a like a core power sort of yoga sort of situation where it's not so focused on going deep and holding long poses and all that kind of stuff. That is a little bit more beneficial to my endurance training than a sh- a, sh- a shwanga yoga, which I think is like I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, but I've done that a few times and it <laughs> wrecks me because it's it, you just like hold poses forever, and I do not perform well after that. So you can be a little bit of a yeah. litmus test in, in a um, trial and error when you're trying to figure this stuff out. If you're not a gym person, if you're not a whatever, you know, you know um, and we'll talk about the foundation training because that's going to be a very applicable thing for um, for our listeners, too. Um, but, yeah, really good answer on that in terms of um, figure out what works well for you and, and performance is going to be in feeling good is going to be a good indicator of that yeah i think that's why athletes in general are so fun because we Mm -hmm. know what feeling good feels like and through my whole professional career um, living in boulder I, i have very rarely had to help somebody feel good you know, if they made it to Boulder, somewhere along the lines, they did something well. <laughs> so, so they they know what happy is. They know what feeling good is. And there's there's certain gifts that come with taking somebody who has led led a relatively unhealthy uh, life and helping them find health and wellness and movement and strength. Um, but that hasn't necessarily been my my career. Um, yeah. I'm usually looking for the next five percent and. Mm-hmm. And in that high performance world. So, and that's, I have an 85 year old guy that challenges me to do that every day too. So it's not just the young ones. Yeah. Super rewarding, super fun. Um, well, what about, since we're kind of on this body, the last kind of few questions on the, on the body work, do you use foam rollers or scraper tools or advise athletes to do that? And if, if so, what are the, benefits there? What are, what are people feeling there? You know, that's such an interesting question because I don't think we really know. Uh, you know, it's the same conversation around ice with broken ankles or sprained ankles. It's like, there's a whole group of people that say ice doesn't work. There's a whole group of people that say foam rolling doesn't work. There's a whole group of people that feel really good when they ice their ankles. There's a whole group of people that feel bad if they don't foam roll. So when I was going through my NASM certification, I, I really remember, because I, I, I remember a lot of what I studied, and I, it's, it's very applicable to my daily life, but they actually had a name for it. It was autogenic inhibition. And they were like, when you foam roll, the muscle spindle it becomes inhibited, and you must stay on that spot for 30 to 60 seconds. And if it hurts, that's okay. Just let the tears come. You know, it's going to be rewarding. And I can remember being taught that. And I was like, okay, this is an important part of becoming a a high-performance strength coach. And then all of a sudden, two years later, I went back to another NASM course. And they were like, 
yeah, you know that stuff we talked about with foam rolling and the autogenic inhibition? Yeah, we're pretty sure that's wrong. We're not sure that that actually happens. And But what we did come down to was, does it feel better when you do it? I mean, we're, we're pretty darn sure that the decision of muscle, tank, muscle tension and muscle length happens right at that muscular tendonous joint. So it's probably more important to spend a little bit more time with the foam roller or any kind of tool. Um, well, a scraping tool will be a very different uh, conversation just physiologically, but, or of the response. But we're pretty sure that that's going to have some impact at the musculotendinous joint with pressure. And that foam roller is probably the most accessible tool to do that. So if, if an athlete says they hate foam rolling, we don't foam roll. Most of my athletes, probably nine and a half out of 10 of them, mm -hmm. like foam rolling. Yeah. And some of them do things that I don't agree with. Like they, they want to foam roll their quads. I don't like foam rolling the belly of the muscle. I, yeah. I am pain averse. But I will tell you that some of the top athletes in the world jump in the gym. And the first thing they do is jump on the foam roller and hit those quads. And I just let them do it because they have to have that process and and i respect their process and if it's not taken away from performance yeah. i'm okay with that yeah the scraping stuff um i kind of leave that to the professionals i don't want to uh create disruption in tissue i'm a strength coach not a body worker so i think staying in my lane with regards to a graston technique like sometimes we're stealing things from professional people who have gone through a lot of training mm -hmm. um so if they need if we feel like there's there's inhibited move or in, inhibition in movement we also have to remember that the brain made that decision to take away that motion okay. and uh, there's people that are a lot smarter than i am who i would tend to want to bring in for any athlete uh if i felt like like why can't i get that to move mm -hmm. i'm not going to force it to move i'm going to consult people who are a lot smarter and and say, okay, let's see why this isn't moving. And then if they want to do Graston to get it moving, and then they hand the athlete to me and they say, okay, this athlete can do that. Let's strengthen the movement. Then, then I'll do that. But I tend to, I'll, I'm careful with that. I use a little gua sha tool sometimes just because of maybe dehydrated tissue, but I'm not going to try and, I'm trying to stay in my lane. It's, it's worked well for me so far. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And and I guess yeah. like we're circling back to that other like example question that I have for you. And, and the answer can also be, I, we don't really know, but say you, we go, I, I go and do a six hour ride in the mountains. I come back and I'm like, Ooh, man, I am not moving well, but I yeah. do a, a few movements from this foundation training, which we'll get into here in a second, mm. um, a few thoracic moves and I'll hit the foam roller, especially like in, in the, in the glute hamstring sort of area. But then I, I'm, yeah. I stand up and I'm like, Ooh, I, I'm back. And it is like legit. I'm back. I am not yep. walking with the limp. I'm not like my muscle is not twitching anymore. Like what the heck is going on when that happens? I would say that you just gave yourself a chance to hydrate that tissue. So if you're using a foam roller in a way that it's kind of a gentle massage, like yeah, the glutes and sitting on the foam them. roller, you got the right foot on the left knee and you're just moving through yep. tissue. Hydration is massively cool after a six hour ride. Um, I, and then I'd probably be like, Adam hit the, hit the Epsom salts bath after that. You'll even feel better. 
I did that last <laughs> night. I could, I've done, yeah. I did the incline like three times and then I f- flew home on a plane and I was like, yep. I, it was like my legs got ran over by a bus last night and I was cooking and I'm like, I, I can't even like bend down to get a pot. Kristen's like, go take an, <laughs> my wife, uh, go take a Epsom salt bath. It did that, did my little meditation thing, got up, yeah, hit the foam or, uh, hit foam roll, Epsom salt bath, got out and I'm like, I feel amazing. Good to yes. go. Rode my bike today. Didn't think yep. I was going to ride my bike. Anyway. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Write that down. Don't forget it. <laughs> That's Epsom, Epsom salt, salt bath. bath. Like happy, happy things. Uh, way, way good idea. That's why I like the foundation training because it's so easy. You don't have to, you don't need a video. Yeah. You know, once you know how to do a founder, once you know how to do, you know, you can even make your own weird movements that, that uh, can work around some of those principles that, that just are yours and yours alone. You know, you feel, feels good. Let's do it. Exactly. Um, so before I promise we'll talk about, we'll talk the specifics about foundation training, but you said the tissue is getting hydration. What do you, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? Like why? the movements I'm doing and a little bit of foam roller, does it just move like a myofascial tissue enough or like the actual muscle fibers enough to allow for some fluid to get in there? What do you, what do you mean by hydration? That's, that's exactly what I would describe. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I think that, I mean, I live in Colorado. It's a very dry state and I would say I'm no genius, uh, but nine out of 10 of us are dehydrated all the time. And when when a human tissue is dehydrated, um, it's at risk. It it it's just it's going to become much more vulnerable uh, in that state. So drinking water while I'm sitting here talking to you, and I'm not moving, uh, that water will go through my digestive system and work its way out. Mm-hmm. But if I take that tissue and I move or I do some kind of modalities that helps tissue facilitate into tissue that might be a little bit compressed, it might be trying to protect. I think that's the other thing too, a six hour bike ride, there's a fatigue state. That's how we get better. We have to knock things down so they get back up stronger. Um, That tissue needs to, to be moving in order to accept hydration. Not just, it it doesn't find its way into those nooks and crannies. We, We have to facilitate those pathways. Exactly. And, and that I think is so vital for listeners to get where, you know, hydration is not as simple as drink, drink, drink. It's the movement is the cue for the circulatory system to work all the stuff around for the muscles to activate and be like, Oh, yo, I need some stuff in here. Right. And it needs to be say in your system in order to get there, but it is not just drink and then you're hydrated. It's way more complex than that. Exactly. Okay. Well, we've been skirting around foundation training and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Aaron, tell us about foundation training, um, how you use it in your practice and where people can access it. Um, you know, foundation training came to me, uh, through Dr. Eric Goodman and through the work that he did, uh, with Lance Armstrong, because I think we talked a little bit about Lance last time we talked, Mm -hmm. but the, the biggest thing for me is whether we like him or whether we don't, he's one of the greatest athletes that there ever was, or perhaps there ever will be. And so when I started tracing Lance's journey from cycling into uh, back to triathlon, I started looking at how he got there from the body of a cyclist 
uh, in backup upright and running. And it was with uh, a trainer in Santa Barbara named Peter Park and Peter's very good friend, Dr. Eric Goodman. So I started going deeper on that. And foundation training in a nutshell is a series of exercises designed to bring the body back into balance and natural movement patterns. It's not natural to, to be stuck in a time trial position. It is natural to, to move around on two feet um, and maybe even at high speed. And there's three key principles. Number one would be anchoring. Number two would be decompression. And then the third one is integration to bring it all into one, one place. And this is, I think, my fifth or sixth year of incorporating it with most of my athletes. And I say most only because I, I can't think for a second uh, of people I don't use it with. Okay. So almost all. Yeah. But uh, anchoring is about um, connecting the pelvis uh, to the femur and the tibia and how they all work together. And anchoring would be to uh, really activate internal rotation of the hips. The natural movement with gravity and ground is to pull the hips into external rotation and get tight on the outside of the hips. We want to strengthen and activate the internal rotation to find balance in how the femurs interact with the hips and the decoupling of the pelvis um, from a neutral, neutral position. So anchoring played very, very strongly and plays very, very strongly to bring in more glute activation, specifically glute med, um, which is traditionally an external rotator, but it also is an ex it's a it's a lateral stabilizer for the body. So it allows you to apply more force in, in a vertical uh, plane of motion. So having that glute medius uh, online and working well is really, really important with both cycling and running and everyday life. Uh, with decompression, I guess the easiest way to describe that would be is that every single day we have to interact with gravity. And if we're not actively doing something to decompress the body, then we are constantly becoming smaller and we are compressing. Uh, Doc Goodman actually figured out a way to help himself from a herniated disc um, in his early 30s. And there's a great TED Talk where he talks about his process of, of bringing his dream of healing himself uh, to fruition. It's a TED Talk and it's easy to, to Google Dr. Eric Goodman and, and Foundation Training TED Talk. Um, it's really powerful. And that decompression and the use of the breath to pull the rib cage off the, the hips and create space between the ribs and the hips um, decompresses the lumbar spine and in turn can actually decompress. If you take a, a, a bed sheet and you lift it up from the middle, you don't just lift the top. Everything comes with it. And so sometimes if I'm having a challenge with an athlete and I'll call Eric and I'll be like, Eric, what do you think about this knee pain? Eric will say the first thing he always asks me, are they decompression breathing? And I'll be like, yeah, okay, good. And then he'll go, we'll go to the next level and we'll the next conversation. I'll call him and say, I can't seem to help the plantar fasciitis. Are they decompression breathing? <laughs> like the answer is always decompress first. Um, so that's a big, big part of it. And then, of course, just integration so that we can just start to really bring the body together to perform in that fluid, natural, free state. Um, there's nothing, you know, when you describe or ask an athlete to describe a state of flow, um, there, it's usually not difficult for them to describe that. And that's magic. Yeah, that's, that is magic for sure. And I think 
when an athlete is is not moving well and all of a sudden they are moving well through all of these like techniques that you're doing like that is magic to them too because not moving well is is uh so painful so like inhibiting. yeah yeah so so if people want to do foundation training i mean there's multiple ways that you can kind of come out at this including do they just google foundation training and then start hacking away on some videos or what do you suggest if people are curious about starting in on this well you know the probably the best the best initial resource is is eric uh foundation streaming site um foundationtraining.com uh, if you ever wanted to incorporate into a practice, um, whether it's any kind of movement specialist or strength coach or anything, um, the, that, that's a really good place to start. If somebody just wants to incorporate it into their strength training and their performance training, I actually use a lot of foundation training in my uh, on-demand app where I teach uh, foundation training classes on my app. So it's, an, it's a long-form video um, you just put on your headphones and get on your phone or your laptop or your computer and and I'll lead you through a class. So um, I'm pretty specific and passionate about endurance sports. So everything that I talk about in those classes is guiding towards cycling and running and skiing and hiking and ultra running. And, um, Eric is very passionate about surfing. Um, so him and uh, Jesse, who's his uh lieutenant uh should i say is they're passionate about surfing so they're gonna really look at it from that skew uh skew and the advantages when you're surfing or when you're swimming or that kind of thing so it really uh depends what people want to do but i i have it at ecfitstrength.com um, but also foundation training uh we're a team we work together i'm i'm really proud to be part of his his group awesome yeah and that's that's actually a good reminder to based on our last conversation that we did the last podcast we did uh we did make an offering if if somebody wanted to utilize your training either the foundation principles or the extensive online video library that you have to offer um can they still do i mean you created a code that is train right and i'm still giving that out to my athletes that's still active right it totally works and it's it's just like I said before, Adam, you just have a really engaged audience. And so I think cool. we've been doing pretty good work with the people that have taken advantage of that. And I've been around long enough that I, I will continue to add videos. I have a, over a hundred videos in five different phases, um, including foundation training, would, yeah. which would be the sixth one. It would be its own category. But we do a lot of pre-flight sessions, which is um, – I think I've got almost 40 videos now that are less than 20 minutes of things to do before you go train. Um, And then I look at it kind of like airline travel. There's launch, there's climb, there's cruise, and then there's recovery, which I call the lounge. I'm kind of into lounges. (laughs) I'm a lounge lizard when I travel. So it's, um, so it's easy. Like when we first start, we might do a lot of launch sessions, which in a traditional sense, you would probably call more like strength, endurance and mobility. Yeah. And then climb, which is strength work. Uh, cruise is a little bit less. I have less videos in cruise because that's more of the high intensity stuff. Might be stuff that you might want to play with a little bit, but it's a tough place to live if you're trying to become a really good cyclist or a really good triathlete. Perfect. Yeah. So essentially, kind of the you know 
the take home for our, our listeners right now, if you want to start to put a lot of this into practice is either, you know, Google foundation training and just start to get education there and keep on exploring. Or if you want some of those specifics that Aaron's already developed and she practices daily, I, I include this with my athletes too. I'll put it in their training peaks, click on that video, go for it. Um, we'll link to show notes in there, but Google EC fit and use the password or sorry, the code train, right. And that is good for the first free month, right? First month. Yeah, that that's actually good for the first free month. But uh, since we've talked last time, I developed mm-hmm. a product called premium and right. speaking of training peaks uh, and the ease that athletes like to use it. If you're part of my premium group and you can kind of explore that and I'd be happy for anybody who listens to this, uh, just train, right. For sure. But email me and say, I heard you on Adam's po- uh, on the train right podcast, and I'll give you 30 days of premium, which means I'm going to dump your weekly uh, schedule into your training peaks myself. And so awesome. I definitely have the ability to customize for people. Um, I have another app that is my custom app. That's EC fit Boulder. Um, I've been using that for years and years, and it, it gives me the opportunity to, to communicate really customized sessions for people. Um, because as you get more high performance, your needs do tend to get a little bit more sniper like, um, and, and we might, uh, might want to do that. So, yes, yes. But I'd be happy to, it's a, yeah, premium is a great place to start because it really shows you how to use the app and how, and so a lot of people, they'll spend 30 days on premium and then they'll go back to the basic membership and just feel like they totally nailed it on their own and it's a little bit cheaper and easier. It's 20 bucks a month to have full access to all that stuff. So awesome. And Aaron, can you give your email address to our listeners? And I'll also include this on show notes. Aaron at ecfitstrength.com. Cool. So I'll, I'll package that all together with links and her email, but, um, yeah, that, that's a cool, generous offer from Aaron. And that is, that's the application to everything that we're doing. And we've spent a lot of time now on the, the body side of things. And we've touched on the brain, we've touched on the breath work. And I just want to spend some, just a little bit of time on each, the, the, the brain and breath and take some of this home now, because I think the body for athletes is a wonderful cue to, kind of package the rest of these, but we're never, we're never just training the body. We're never just training the brain. We're never just training breath. So Aaron, the question to you is like through movements, new brain connections are being made. What is just the pure value of making those like brain connections? That's the best term I can have for it. But like, just from a, what is the benefit there from a health or the, the performance standpoint? Like what's going on there? the word that comes to mind is freedom. Um, freedom of movement, freedom to move, freedom to be um, pain-free uh, at any age to be able to have the belief that you can get better because you don't have restriction, not only in your body, uh, but also in your mind, the belief that you can get better. Um you know, the, the other side of the mountain doesn't have to come too early. Um, and maintaining our health uh, is paramount, especially later in life, or the ability to recover from injury or illness. Um, when, when the brain knows how to rest, 
when we have that ability to control not just how hard we work, but how hard we recover, um, it's amazing how performance the, the performance uptick that comes from that. Um, I can only imagine the. I, I know how good I feel when my athletes are happy because they're performing well and their their relationships are good and they they just they're just happy. I think happiness and freedom are are two kind of woo woo parts of me that as I get older and uh, those are those are things that are really really important. Uh, when it comes to high performance more than we ever thought. No, hard work is always going to be there, but I don't think, I think we know more now Mm -hmm. that uh, just the hard work isn't enough. It actually might actually be a detriment. Um, We need to be able to rest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say to athletes all the time, just keep like, if they ask like, what's the secret, what's the key, what's the consistent thing. And I'm just like, keep moving and sleep well, rest well, yeah. movement, sleep, stay hydrated too. That helps. Three it things. all helps. <laughs> um, so also kind of per the brain and getting into the nerves, like when we're moving and focus on that movement pattern and we're learning new um, movement techniques, you get better nerve conductivity. Can you just describe like high level on how how that works and why it's valuable. You know, falling is, is part of training. Um, the movement bubble I mentioned earlier, it's, it's interesting. You're, you're challenging me a little bit on this one, Adam, because I'm not a skills coach anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to be a basketball coach. I'm very good at instructing, you know, how to teach a jump shot, um, <laughs> hip, elbow, wrist, two fingers, sniper, like, you know, how the, yeah. how the basketball releases from the, the two fingers. And if the third finger comes in, you're going to get a weird spin on the ball. And, and I loved that part of my coaching life. Um, but, it, but endurance sports are, are much more global there's not as much specificity to it. Um, it's, it's just much more global. So it, it's really the fine motor skills aren't part of my day to day so much anymore. Um, I just want to keep people really healthy and really big global movements. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how to really address that. I think if I was working in a different sport, it, it might be a, a little bit different. Um, yeah. It, well, I'll just say for maybe even like the, um, the purpose of this like question where, where I go to is mountain biking and I'm, and I'm still a skills coach in mountain biking. And when we're yes. working on solving some problems there, it, it's, it's huge in the way people move and their explosiveness. And the thing that I keep on going back to in, in muscle physiology and strength and condi- conditioning is the concept of, um, when you when you fire a muscle and you try to fire more force into that muscle you're telling the brain to shoot more acetylcholine across from that nerve or across the nerve synapse and the more it's shooting the more excitable it's going to be and the more force generation we can do and i think that that is something to note and something to um, to learn as an endurance athlete, because it's a primary reason on why we can get strength gains without muscle size. 
And for me, it, you know, it's happening when you're teaching a skill and it's happening when you're, um, you know, doing that high velocity movement or, uh, the deadlift, something like that. And that's, that's kind of where I'm getting at. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah. I think when we look at, at force production versus rate of force production, that's kind of what you're talking about there. And Bingo. it's really, yeah. So reaction time, power movements, I actually wish I did more of that. I don't feel in a traditional periodized program, you would spend a, a set amount of time in each one of those boxes mm -hmm. training an athlete because my athletes tend to race somewhat frequently. We very rarely get to go through a full schedule of rate of force production. Um, and it might actually, because I am risk averse, because I am very conscious of athletes being able to perform the work that their coaches give them. Um, I will throw that in there very, very delicately, mm -hmm. uh, in their programs. And it usually, I will use it as a tool to excite the athlete if they come in in a pretty low state of, uh, energy. Right. So it, it, the, I, I, totally understand. And I don't think a lot of, um, mountain bikers tend to come my way very much because I don't mountain bike. So I'm not really part of that. I fully respect how dangerous it is and how hard it can be. And that makes perfect sense. Um, but gravel now is so big that, uh, but it's not as much reaction in gravel. It's not as much single track. Yeah. Well, that's it. And that's the difference of, you know, when you're working with athletes who are racing for four to 10, I mean, upwards of, I don't know, probably 16 hours if you're working with a unbound gravel athlete versus, right. you know, a cross country mountain biker, which if we're racing short track, it can be as little as 20 minutes or right around 90 minutes, you know, that's, or a criterium racer racing, you know, 60 to 90 minutes with a lot of explosive, um, energy production. So that's, that's a difference there. I, I would say in, in the need for the athlete to shoot that much more acetylcholine across the, that makes, the synapse. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> Just why it's in my brain. Um, but yep. it's also in, in every movement pattern. And I think, you know, to, to get to the, the point of moving well and performing better, I think that applies to, you know, um, every athlete out there. And back to your point, Aaron, as long as what you're doing is making you feel good and perform well in your sport, I, I, I think you incorporate that movement into it, right? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so as we kind of transition into this last portion of it, the breath is there, well, let, let's just go right to it. Like when we talk about breath work, what does that mean to you? How would you define breath work and then how do you apply it? I use it in a couple of different ways. Uh, from a traditional strength and conditioning standpoint, we're going to use breath to help stabilize the spine. So that is first and foremost, something we don't, we want to use it from a bracing standpoint if we're under heavy load. Um, but I'm also pretty cognizant to have most of my athletes breathe in a very natural state. One of the first things that I will do though, is to check on can that uh, athlete actually expand and move their rib cage? Because that's not very common that someone comes to me for the first time and they can actually inhale 
and expand into my hands. I'll put my hands right on their rib cage and exhale. So we talk about belly breathing versus decompression breathing in foundation training. And decompression breathing is not belly breathing. It's very different, as a matter of fact. So when you inhale with foundation training, you expand and elevate the rib cage away from the hips and you draw the stomach in. As you exhale, you want to demonstrate that you can actually hold the stomach in and you don't want the belly to expand and contract. That shows control with the transverse abdominal muscles. It shows good control and bracing of the lumbar spine. So that is a skill that we will start with that expansion of the rib cage and the control of the intra intra abdominal pressure. So the uh, sec real yeah. quick, just out of, and maybe listeners can do this too, but if I'm, if I'm going to yeah. try to do that breathing right now, and if I'm having a hard time not getting my, or keeping my stomach, uh, from going out, like, how do you cue that? Like if I'm like, Oh, my stomach's out. Like what, what should I change? Pull Pull your belly button into your spine. Oh, yeah. But I will also say that we need to lay you on your back. Oh, okay. Because Maybe most, so we want to, we want to unload the spine. Mm -hmm. We want to put the pelvis into neutral. So the cue there, there's two ways we can cue that. We want to elevate the pubic bone mm -hmm. or we want to drop the sacrum. Gotcha. And we want to flatten the back. So every Pilates instructor mm -hmm. out there right now mm -hmm. probably hates me. Because they're like, this what is, is she opposite. even talking about? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So yeah. we want to ele elevate the pubic bone, find flat hips, and create so that you cannot slide your hand under the lumbar spine. Got it. That is a neutral pelvis. So flat hips, neutral pelvis, drop the sacrum. That's going to create the ability to then start engaging the transverse abdominals and be able to breathe from that beautiful neutral spine position. You can go a little bit further with that because that sh that demonstrates lumbar control. Okay. It doesn't mean you need to live there, nor should you think that you can perform at a very high level in neutral pelvis. Mm -hmm. I believe that most sport, you need to be able to go into an anterior tilt to engage. Yeah. You just need to be able to come back from it. You cannot get stuck there. Mm -hmm. When you get stuck there, that's when you start to really lose balance in that uh, in the hips and the glutes, and okay. you become a little bit less functional or powerful from the glutes. Um, I'm not the kind of person that says that your glutes shut off because I don't think they do, no. but they might not be optimally working or optimally firing when you get stuck in an anterior tilt. I'm glad we so are the ability, with that, by the way. Yeah, I think when an athlete, like, no, come on. they don't. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah, that's, we won't go down that, that rabbit yeah. hole. But the most important thing to, to recognize, I think there's a skill associated with being able to find neutral when you need to find neutral. And that can usually come from the breath. If, if you're out for a run and you start to feel yourself, I ran a half marathon yesterday. I was really ready for about eight and a half miles and it was 13.1, unfortunately, but there were, there came very many times in those final five miles when I was thinking, okay, I need to drop my pelvis, drop my sacrum, find neutral and elevate my rib cage because the people that I was running with yesterday, because I broke my ankle in July. So I'm, I'm really only like 
four months out from uh, from a pretty pretty severe ankle injury, and I had signed up for this race already. I wanted to do it, and uh, but I really wasn't ready for it. But the, when you run thirty almost thirty minutes slower than you usually run, you're surrounded by a whole different group of people when you're running. Mm-hmm. And I was finding myself just assessing what's happening to that body, what's happening to that body, because they they were breaking, and they're they're. I don't know what their heart and lungs were doing, but their bodies were taking on all kinds of contortions. And I was like, wow, that person's shoulder blades are elevating and they're starting to really fall forward and they're getting very short on the front side. And their psoas and rectus femoris and hip capsules are probably really shut down and their glutes probably aren't firing. So I was keeping myself very occupied in the final five miles of this race. But it was really, really interesting because I was like, I'm becoming a better strength coach right now. Exactly. Because if I can help this group of people, the people yeah. from two hours to 2.15, um, that's going to expand my ability in a, in a huge way. Because yep. these, many of these people are going to really be down for a couple of weeks um, or they're creating patterns. Their, their body's just becoming so small and so mm-hmm. short. Mm-hmm. So the breath... Uh, always coming back to the breath because it's so simple to come back for it. That ability to just expand the rib cage, elevate the rib cage away from the pubic bone will really start to lengthen the psoas. And if in an active way, not a passive way, I'm actually, my muscles uh, that are deep within the spine are starting to get long again. And I was able to drop my sacrum and I was able to find my glutes. And then I had to make really good decisions that I'm really not ready for this. So I probably shouldn't push my pace, but it was, it, I was able to stay aligned and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel horrible today. I, I did just take an Epsom salts bath though. <laughs> the, the secret right there to recovery. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. We went down a, an interesting rabbit hole with the cueing of the breath. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you were on to like point number two about, uh, some of this breath, yeah. Performance. Uh, the second part of that would really be that that uh, parasympathetic uh, stimulation using your breath. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I am not an expert in that, but I use many of those techniques um, for sure. Uh, inhale, hold, exhale, control breath in in, in an exhale. Um, and I'm really excited to keep going down that. Um, that rabbit hole, maybe not on this podcast, because I'm not an expert. I think you could probably find somebody who's way better than me on that. But that recovery and that ability to just switch on and switch off using breath, I think this is going to be an exciting uh, few months in performance and high performance when people, um, we can go deeper on that. I can use it very rudimentary, mentally. Yeah. And I think rudimentary, like using it on a rudimental level, I think is fine because that's where I think a lot of us, maybe strength coaches and endurance coaches are using it right now. But I would challenge everybody to just think about it simplistically. Meaning if you take, if you actually pause and take a few slow, deep breaths while wearing a heart rate monitor, what do you notice? Heart rate goes down. Right. And so from a pure resting standpoint and from these systems in your body, the rest and digest system, if you are more relaxed, that rest and digest system will work way more efficiently and way more better for you. And if 
if it's a it's if it's a race of recovery in terms of who's going to get the most adaptation being very good at controlling and, and setting the stage for recovery is paramount and i do think that if you're able to control that recovery condition in your body with breath and cueing yourself to do that that's the most like simple way of doing it and why people should tune into their breath. Now this is very separate. I'm not an expert on breath. I've never taken a breath class and whatever. There's a lot, you can get certified in like breathing techniques and you can buy all these gadgets to like restrict breathing. And I think all that is bullshit for the record, but there is a huge amount of value in recognizing your breath, becoming very aware of it and using it within your movement patterns. Even think about if you're doing a front squat of just like when you should breathe, when is appropriate to breathe or effective to breathe, let's use that word, versus not appropriate to breathe because that will change the whole dynamic of how the movement looks, how it feels, and how much weight you can move. You know, it's it's, it's very, it's... It's, it's kind of like silly cool to me in, in the way that breath can work. When, when I'm working with an athlete climbing, right, and they're just like in the pain cave at a 16% grade out of the saddle or something, they're just, <gasps> just going crazy. And it's like, focus on your breath, deeper breaths. And then <sighs> it, it's just cueing as simple as that and getting a little bit of control because typically that person is very unaware that their breath is out of control. And if you can cue it to become in control, you can then control the effort. And that's what I mean of just like a rudimentary or a simple way of applying breath work into your training. I think that probably most of the people listening to this podcast care enough about high performance for themselves um, that they should take your advice. Because I think not many people are really thinking about this. Um, as a really big differentiator. I have a lot of young athletes who hopefully will compete for world championships and uh, gold medals in the coming years. And as young athletes, if I can teach them to to, uh, embrace these kinds of concepts that are opposite of hard work, I think it's going to be a huge advantage for, for us as a team. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. hundred percent. If you're curious more about breath work, um, I'll also link to some of this in the show notes, but there's, there's some relaxation techniques that you can use. And it's, it's simply like laying down, breathing, relaxing. And then uh, this is kind of a trippy one, but you, you try to feel your heartbeat. So you feel your heartbeat say in your chest at first, and then you try to use your mind to put it into your hands and then your feet. And what you'll realize is your pulse is all over your body. It's the focus of where you're putting it, right? And that's a mindfulness technique that you can use to kind of take control of your body with breath. And it's and it's a pretty cool way of doing it. But again, it's just awareness and mindfulness. The last thing that I'll use, and this is a plug for, you can either love him or hate him, but Sam Harris has a pretty cool app called Waking Up. And it's a mindfulness app to play he uses meditation as well as some other techniques in spurring on mindfulness and and you can google that or download on your phone and try it out but that's another tool that i use with athletes to um kind of learn a little bit more about breath work and and um uh becoming aware of oneself 
And I should ask, I mean, is there any, any quick hacks or any uh, breath work hacks outside of foundation training or working specifically with you, Aaron, that you would uh, pass on to our listeners? Well, I know that in the coming uh, next 30 days, I'm one of my, one of my very, very good friends, uh, Dr. Lawrence Van Langen. Lawrence is a sports chiropractor from South Africa, but he, he is just his, his YouTube channel is called inner runner. And, uh, Lawrence and I are going to be doing okay. some work together. Um, because he's always so complimentary that when he puts his hands, he's a fascial worker. Um, he's a breath worker. He has some, some crazy ideas about decreasing neural tension within the body. He's been able to free up. Um, I know I've used the word freedom a lot today, uh, free up some, some uh, movement and some emotion with a lot of my athletes that are, are a little bit too tense and that tension has gone beyond and it no longer serves them. Um, so Lawrence Van Langen, inner runner um, on YouTube, and I can share that information with you, but I'm excited to be doing more work with Lawrence in the coming, uh, the coming months and years, because I think we are all falling to this place of, of uh, maybe slow down a little bit to get faster. Um, and I'm really intrigued mm-hmm. by that and, and uh, surrounding myself with people like that uh, will only make the work that I do even better. So. Very cool. Yeah. Please share that with me and I'll, I'll put that kind of in the, the, the media goodies for our listeners to, to check out. Yeah. He's worth, he's worth listening cool. to. Awesome. Well, I guess, you know, to kind of wrap this thing up, you know, it's, first of all, it's just been super good to catch up with a friend and fellow coach colleague out there in, in the endurance world. So, um, thank you, Aaron, for being part of our conversation today. And, you know, I think that this excuse for a conversation in catch up, it was, um, also awesome because it provided a lot of, uh, rich information for our listeners and to, to try to recap everything that we did talk about is like, it's, it's beyond muscle physiology when we're talking about movement patterns and some of this off the bike, off the run, off the swim, off the primary sport way of training. And I'll encourage listeners to get away uh, from quantifying what's occurring and tune in to becoming more aware of what is actually occurring inside the body because all the data, all the metrics, it, it it's getting better, but it's not there yet in the way of telling us this is good. Your body and your movement is, <laughs> is the thing that's telling you is good and it's body, it's brain and it's breath. And combine those three things together and tuning in and working with good people such as yourself, I think our listeners will have a lot of success in doing this training away from their primary sport. Is there anything else you want to add on to that, Aaron? No, I just want to say thank you. I, I, I just am so passionate about helping people live the most exciting lives they possibly can. And, uh, you know, it's just part of the process and it's people like you that, that make it all possible and bring the bring the message. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you, Aaron. Uh, super appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to learning more about everything that you're working on right now and, and also just working together with athletes to get them moving better. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for joining us this week on the train, right podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainwright.com forward slash podcast where you can find social links, bonus content, and more about CTS. 
go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show and leave us a rating on iTunes. Until next time, train hard, train smart, train right.